0: Hello, thank you for joining me this Monday, February 13th. It has been a busy, busy weekend, especially if you were a fighter pilot. Shooting down stuff Friday, shooting down stuff Saturday, shooting down stuff Sunday. (laughs) But I want you to be reassured, at least I think this is reassuring, The White House gave a briefing this afternoon and they confirmed unequivocally these are not aliens. Okay? No aliens. Without question, just take that extraterrestrial thing off the table. First, there was the Chinese spy balloon. Remember the Chinese spy balloon? 200 feet tall, weighed 2,000 pounds. Size of three buses. Well, then on, um, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, we shot more stuff down. We're told one was the size of a car. One was an octagon, you know, like a stop sign. And one was cylindrical. <laughs> Uh, but these are not UFOs in the sense that they are alien. That's the only thing I can tell you for sure. Other than that, um, not much that we know. They were varying altitudes. They were varying compositions. And the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday objects that were shot down we are told it's not that they were. We were convinced they were spying on us. Just that um, that they presented a danger to commercial aviation. Now you don't want to be on that United flight to uh, Quebec and get uh, knocked out of the sky by that octagon. Oh, by the way, um, because the first object balloon that we shot down was definitely Chinese, and they claim it. They don't claim it was a spy balloon, but they claim it was theirs. They're now feeling apparently kind of sensitive about this whole issue, and they want the world to know that the United States, in recent years, the United States has flown at least 10 balloons over China, okay? So there. Balloons, balloons everywhere. So I know maybe you're thinking what I'm thinking. Has this stuff sort of always been up there and we just never really paid any attention to it? Is it the kind of thing where, you know, once you start looking for something, then you find it and you find it over and over again? Good question. These are all good questions, and I don't have any answers for you, and I don't know that our government does either, except for the fact that it's not aliens Or so they claim. But we keep finding this stuff and we keep shooting it down. So at the very least, uh, some of our fighter pilots are getting some target practice, I guess. Okay, let's move on. Shall we move on? Oh, you know, we're going to talk to Professor William Muck who is a political science professor specializing in international issues. (laughs) We're going to talk to him about it again. We're also going to talk to him about Ukraine and Russia because there are developments on that front. Plus, I know it's hard to believe, but we are also getting very close to the one year anniversary of this invasion, this war. Unbelievable, isn't it? probably pretty believable if you live in Ukraine, having lived with all of this. So uh, we will be talking about that with him in the three o'clock hour. And remember, this week and next week, we are going to be talking to the candidates who would like to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. We uh, spoke with Paul Vallis on Friday Tomorrow, we are going to be in the, from 2.30 to 3.30 talking to Brandon Johnson and from 4 to 5 talking to Dr. Willie Wilson. Thursday, we're going to be talking to State Rep. Cam Buckner and uh, Alderwoman Sophia King. And then um, the week after, um, right now we have uh, Rod Sawyer booked for Tuesday. Uh, so far, we have not gotten a response from Lori Lightfoot, or Mr. Garcia. We are going to continue to reach out to both of those camps. But, um, you know, I can't remember. Maybe this happened before and I just wasn't paying as close of attention, but it seems like every day and every night there is a mayoral forum, all the different television stations doing it, various activist groups doing them, League of Women Voters doing them, various radio stations, WCPT doing them. So I don't think that people going to the polls February 28th to vote for mayor should be uneducated about the candidates. I think people should have a pretty strong feeling for who's who and what's what. There is um, a lot of information, and even organizations that aren't affiliated with forums um, are posting interviews. Block Club is doing a series of interviews with the candidates. There is a lot of information out there, if you live in the city of Chicago, to try to figure out who you want to vote for. And we will continue to continue these interviews because, you know, it's crunch time. As we get close to an election, you know, anybody who lives in this area knows that there's going to be accusations, counter accusations, refutations. It is going to really, really heat up. We're going to get a lot more finger-pointing and finger-wagging as we get closer to February 28th. And um, on the 28th of February, uh, stick with us. As you know, every election, we do a live broadcast. We are going to do one on the 28th. When we have the parameters nailed down a little bit better, I will bring them to you. But it is election season, And if you live in Wisconsin, election, your next election is next week, the 21st, where Wisconsinites are going to vote in the primary to narrow the field down to two candidates for the open Supreme Court seat. This is so important. Right now, the Wisconsin Supreme Court has four Liberals and four conservatives. Two conservatives and two liberals are running after the 21st. That field will be narrowed by 50%. Could be two liberals, could be a liberal and a conservative, could be two conservatives running after that point, whoever gets the most votes. But it is going to determine what happens in Wisconsin for a very long time. Things like gerrymandering, things like abortion bans, will all end up before this Supreme Court. And I know that judges are supposed to be apolitical, but the reality is even when politics, like for the Supreme Court, supposedly politics isn't involved, but they are human beings, And they have track records, and whether or not they want to say whether they are a Republican or a Democrat, conservative or liberal, it's pretty obvious that there are two pretty far right-wing people and two left-to-moderate people running in this race. And as every issue ends up before a court, it seems these days, It is going to really determine what kind of state Wisconsin is going forward. If you live in Wisconsin, please, please, please do whatever it takes to vote in the primary this coming Tuesday, February 21st. Hugely, hugely important. By the way, if you are in the Chicago area, early voting opens today across all 50 of Chicago's wards. You can go to any of these sites From now till February 28th to cast a ballot. I am Block Club Chicago is reporting that these sites are accessible to people with disabilities. And there are even weekend hours. You might want to check that before you go. But there are weekend hours. If you want all the information, go to Block Club Chicago. And um, if you find you are not registered to vote, you can register in person at whatever polling place you go to. Here in Illinois, we believe that the more people who vote, the better. So we have tried to make voting easy. I know. What a concept. Early voting opens today across Chicago's 50 wards. Now through February 28th. And if it's like you can get all the detailed information if you go to Block Club Chicago. We have uh, more to talk about. Do you know that big kerfuffle with Ron DeSantis and... Uh, AP advanced placement, African-American studies, which uh, he said that he didn't want. uh, It was uh, no educational, no, no value to the students of the state of Florida. And supposedly education officials in Florida demanded all these changes to the curriculum, which they claim the college board capitulated to. The college board put out a statement that basically calls the state of Florida a liar. I'm going to share that and much more with you when we come right back after this.
1: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
0: Ron DeSantis and uh, his education officials in Florida made a big deal about the fact that they don't want um, advanced placement African-American studies in high schools and if they have to acquiesce to it, they want certain things not taught. They want certain authors or or original sources not included. They um, they announced that they made all these demands, and then they announced that the college board said yes, acquiesced, uh, took people off their curriculum, changed the curriculum, taking stuff out, and the... College Board itself has uh, been pretty quiet until just recently. Um, they came out with a statement on Saturday that is pretty blunt. You know, um, and and interestingly, they frame this in terms of mistakes they made, not. The, They're not saying that they capitulated, but they say that in the way that this was announced, rolled out, that there were mistakes made. It says, we are proud of this course, but we have made mistakes in the rollout that are being exploited. We need to clear the air and set the record straight. We deeply regret not immediately denouncing the Florida Department of Education's slander, magnified by the DeSantis administration's subsequent comments that African-American studies, quote, lacks educational value. Our failure to raise our voice betrayed black scholars everywhere and those who have long toiled to build this remarkable field, point one. We should have made clear that the framework is only the outline of the course, and that the scholarly articles, video lectures, and questions um, will be available to teachers, and the teachers can decide what to put in and what not. Florida said that there were certain people that they didn't want included, certain voices that they didn't want included. And by not saying anything, they're saying that, We never made any changes to this. There was there was always going to be a selection that teachers could choose from. This was nothing to do in reaction to anything from from Florida. Point three, we should have made clear that contemporary events like the Black Lives Matter movement, reparations and mass incarceration were optional topics in the pilot course. Our lack of clarity allowed the narrative to arise that political forces had downgraded the role of these contemporary movements and debates in the AP class. They say that the actual materials for the course were completed in April of 2022, before any of this came out, any of this pushback supposedly came out and any of this capitulation supposedly came out. And they talk about that. While it has been claimed that the College Board was in frequent dialogue with Florida about the content of AP African-American studies, this is a false and politically motivated charge. Our exchanges with them, our transactional emails about the filing of paperwork to request a pilot course code, and our response to their request – that the College Board explain why we believe the course is not in violation of Florida laws. We had no negotiations about the content of this course with Florida or any other state, nor did we receive any requests, suggestions, or feedback. Mm -mm -mm. Basically, they're saying that Florida... The Department of Education, backed up by Ron DeSantis, lied, 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 lied. lied. Florida sent them letters, but the letters, like, here's one. Um, Florida reached out and uh, sent them a note that said, um, they asked questions like, what does the word intersectionality mean? Does the co- course promote Black Panther thinking? The Florida Department of Education did not bring any Afri- African-American studies scholars or teachers to their call with us, despite the presence in their state of so many renowned experts in the discipline. We asked them if they could get specific What were their specific concerns? They said they had to check with their supervisors and get permission to talk. They never followed up. Never followed up. They never got any feedback from Florida. But, man, if you look at the press releases, you would think that Florida made demands and that the college board just rolled over. And they're saying that is bullpucky, and it's we've we're really sorry we've waited so long to call these lies out. You know, by all accounts, Ron DeSantis wants to run for president. I think he's going to be very surprised that a lot of these moves that he's making and a lot of the crap that he's saying that maybe, maybe people in Florida are okay with, they're not going to fly in the rest of the country. It's really not. One other note before we take a break. Governor Pritzker today announced the 2023 recipients of the Order of Lincoln. This is our state's highest honor for professional achievement and public service. There's going to be a big to-do in April. April. At uh, down in Springfield to honor these people. Three names I thought you might find interesting. First, John Rogers, co-ce- co-CEO of Aerial Investments. He's being honored. Jane Thompson, the widow of Jim Thompson, former governor, is going to be honored. And last but not least, oh, I mean, there's a, there are other people, uh, but one other name that I think you're going to know. Tom Skilling. Thomas E. Skilling III, longtime chief meteorologist on WGN TV, Chicago Tribune weather columnist. They give a little bit of a bio that his career started at the age of 14 when he was hired by a radio station in his hometown of Aurora, Illinois. In 2018, he celebrated his 40th anniversary with WGN. So uh, by my count, he's coming up pretty fast on uh, 45. He is known not only as an expert in his field, but one of the most famous and certainly one of, if not the most beloved figure in Chicago media. I don't know anybody who has a bad word to say about Tom Skilling, and if they did, I wouldn't believe them. I've known the man, I've worked with the man. He is exactly what you see on television. I mean, the guy who can go to cover an eclipse and be moved to tears by that, that is who Tom Skilling is. He is just kind and sweet, and he deserves all the awards all the time, in my humble opinion. So it's, um, let's see, April 29th in uh, Springfield, Illinois. The whole slew of recipients of the Order of Lincoln will be honored. And I'm sure one of the most humble to take the stage that night, if they are allowed to make remarks, will be Tom Skilling. We are going to take a break. You know, um, we tell you all the time that our text line is sponsored by Camp Kupagani. It is, it is really an interesting organization, and it fits so perfectly with the mission of this radio station because they really do try to raise the consciousness of their campers. We're going to talk to them about what they do and how they do it right after this.
1: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
0: By the way, a very sharp-eared listener wanted me to change the tense. Uh, Tom Skilling does not currently do the weather page for the Chicago Tribune. He did the weather page for the Chicago Tribune. I don't know if that was an Alden Capital cutback or what we have to to thank for that. Um, But. That was that should be past tense, not present tense. You know, you hear all the time on this radio station about Camp Kupagani. It is um, it is an organization that wants to instill uh, certain values, mm, not religious values, not political values, but a certain kind of openness. A certain kind of equity and they work very hard to make sure that their students don't just have a good time but that they really learn about society as well as having fun and being outside. I thought it would be interesting to find out a little bit more about who they are, who their campers are, and what kind of programs they have. So we asked uh, Kevin Gordon, who owns Camp Kupagani, to join us and answer some of our questions. Kevin, thank you for being here.
2: Uh, Hi, thanks for having me on.
0: Uh, It's, well, you know, I feel like I should know more about Camp Kupagani. I've been talking about it For years. When did uh, when did you start this Camp Kupagani?
2: Uh, We started uh, 17 years ago. Wow. Child is the same age. So that's a challenge.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So at the time you started it, did you consciously design a program that was going to be more about more than just making friendship bracelets and canoeing?
2: Uh, yes, you' pretty intentional about it because it began um, as uh, sort of reaction, uh, my, my first um, interaction with camping was just being a, a tennis pro at a very non, um, very homogenous, non-intentional camp in Wisconsin. And I was still, even with that, I was blown away by the impact of camp. So my reaction to seeing that was like, wow, suppose you could do this but have intentionally bring different people together and, and, and be more mindful of, you know, kind of the lessons and the openness that we wanted to have. So that was, that was where the idea first spawned and then it was took a minute to get to it. Uh, But then, yeah, that was always the goal from when we started camp.
0: Who are your campers and where do they come from and what are their ages and backgrounds?
2: They about, uh fifty percent come from either Chicago or Chicago land like suburbs towns cities etc uh, about fifty um, percent are from different states or regions we used to be more international but we're still figuring out our international campus are still figuring out pandemic life going forward mm-hmm. so hasn't been the last year or two um, our um, kind of ethnic break, they Breakdown: We have probably about forty, fifty percent are kind of white or Caucasian. About thirty percent are uh, Black or African American. My math is not going to add up here. <laughs> about fifteen to twenty percent <laughs> Latino, Latina, Hispanic identifying. Yeah, that's a hundred already. <laughs> and uh, let's say Asian about ten percent. So it's a nice mix of. Kids and it's you know we try to be you know the a version of the world that we want to see that you see people have on you know their brochures and stuff but we're actually trying to live it in real time so
0: that raises an interesting point how how big is the camp how many campers do you usually have and do they stay for a week or two weeks how does it work
2: uh, most of our campers come for two week sessions so we have a. Uh, We have two two two-week blended sessions where um, different genders are there at the same time, and then we have a two-week girls-only session. And about 70% of the campers come for a single session. About 30% come for multiple sessions. Um, So the – oops, I forgot what the other part of the question was. (laughs)
0: well um that that's that's a good enough answer um i'm curious though i mean most people think of camp particularly summer camp as being outside and learning how to swim or how to play badminton how do you how do you integrate what people the the normal things people expect with the mission that you're trying to accomplish
2: so that's part so they do get to do all those things so you get to you know play mud volleyball, dam jumping, and rock climbing, and swimming, and all that. Because uh, my uh, kind of thought or vision as you know, youth, I guess a youth professional, is that it's always better to. Uh, I think of it as like vegetables. <laughs> with, like, butter and sautéed and whatever, delicious. So it's good for you, but you don't even realize, like, wow, I was getting all those nutrients and didn't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, like, like those so waffles do you do. that you can buy that have broccoli and carrots embedded in them somewhere mysteriously.
2: Right. Like, what did I just have? I'm like, oh, I'm nutritious and satisfied. <laughs> um so the um, so the idea is like when you can have fun and you know you're learning these lessons and valuable tools like without even knowing it, um, can you know to me that's like the best way of you know child development or really human development because like if you're learning something and you're having fun as a human, you know the the world's already a better place in an easier way. Um, that said, it's it's challenging um, because anytime you're bringing together different. Um, whether it's like of external things or internal things or whatever like you you have to you know you have to have those tools with conflict resolution and how to be mindful of others and how to treat others you know properly and respectfully even if you are disagreeing with you know x y and z that isn't in your life <laughs> but it's but it is in someone else's
0: you know it's interesting that you that you mentioned that because so many camps do tend to be kind of homogenous. There, it's a camp designed for X kind of child, and so there aren't those um, aren't those situations where conflict could arise. But when you have people with all different kinds of backgrounds and all different kinds of ethnicities, um, there there is a, certainly a much greater likelihood that there will be some conflict. How do you ha- guys handle that?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, one we um, we're very transparent about all the things. So when we, you know, on our website and when we're talking to parents, we're like, they're like, yeah, camp is fun, and eh, you know, in my mind, a, a great camp experience, you should cry at least once um, because you're stretching yourself in whatever way. So it could be. You know, it could be a physical challenge. I'm like, oh, I'm doing this and I never thought I could do that. Like whether it's rock climbing or dancing, or it's, you know, wow, I am. I am getting along with somebody who is so different from me and I'm employing these conflict resolution tools. And it's hard <laughs> because you're, mm-hmm. you're using those muscles that, you know, you're not having to use in school, for example, um, or on the baseball team. Um, so, it, uh, it it can be a challenge, but like we always tell our our staff members that, you know, it's one thing to be a great staff member at just a regular, you know, so-called, so-called traditional camp because you have to be a great, you know, mentor whatever person. The additional layer of challenge is that, yes, that at our camp, plus, you know, we're poking the bear. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, that's getting along, and, you know, let's, you know, let's layer on to that, like what you're doing with with um, areas of difference, or you know, when you're bringing up topics or challenges that are that can be uncomfortable.
0: So, I guess that's that's my other question about how this works. I mean, you've said there are a lot of the traditional sort of camping experiences one would expect, rock, rock climbing at all, but do you also? How do you? talk about the social issues? I mean, do you just wait till it arises organically? Are there um, meetings around the campfire where, you know, you say, like, let's talk about this? How how does the socially progressive part of the program work?
2: Mm hmm. Yeah, it's interesting as we've evolved over the years. So when we first started in like year one and year two and year three and whatever, you know, we were super mindful of like, okay, let's program this. So we're going to have this campfire exactly about this and these cab activities are going to theme around this. And, and it was good and, and effective. And then every year, like as we get feedback and as we do the things, we, we realized like the most impactful stuff just happened. Um, by design, you know. So we're intentionally, you know, making sure that 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 the groups are diverse and all that. But um, a lot of the valuable conversations and stuff happens, you know, at cabin time and in unstructured time and, uh, and what we call like free to learn or at at the table at the you know at the dining table. So um, a lot of that is there's some
3: curricular type stuff.
2: But a lot of it is just you know giving staff and campers like the tools to um to have like good um you know facilitated or just safe discussions about things um more organically so 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 now it's kind of a combination of both, but we find a lot of the powerful moments just come from like you know you're just hanging out in your cabin with you know so and so um And for me, like one of the most valuable things, like there's this one group of campers, oh gosh, they're probably like 18 or 19, 20 now. And when they first came to camp, there's 0% chance, like one was uh, was like a a Hindu background, one was a Jewish girl, one was a white girl, one was a black girl. And there's 0% chance that they ever would have connected (laughs) in the outside world, outside of camp. And then from that first uh, summer, like in the winter, I'd get this phone call at some random time with giggling <laughs> at the time, you know, giggling fourteen year olds are
4: like, Oh, ah, blah, 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 blah.
2: I'm like, Okay. Y'all are having a sleepover outside of camp again, huh? That's great, <laughs> um, and then I think now even two of them are going to the same school, and the other two like still connect with them. So it's really kind of magical when you see the outcome of that, the intentionality around bringing people together because it, cause it can it can happen. We don't have to be a world where we're you know at each other's throat all the time. We can we can connect and you know live that uh, live that Benetton ad uh, if anyone remembers what those looked like.
0: <laughs> yeah. Kevin, we need to take a real quick break. I'm talking to Kevin Gordon, who is the owner of Camp Kupagani. We are going to be back with more right after this.
1: Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
0: Here on WCPT, you hear all the time about Camp Kupagani, a camp that not only exposes kids to the usual fun stuff that they do at camp, but also um it comes with an intention to make sure that the campers learn to get along with a diverse, a real diverse group of people. Um, and, you know, one of the things that occurs to me, Kevin, Kevin Gordon is the owner of Camp Kupagani. I would think that the kids who most need this kind of experience probably are the least likely to get a chance to do it. I'm thinking of the kids who grow up, in families that are deeply racist or deeply homophobic and are indoctr- indoctrinated with those kinds of beliefs. I know that you guys do some recruitment. How, how do you look for kids? And, and is there a way to reach kids whose families might see your advertising and go, Oh no, I don't want my kid to go away with that liberal nonsense.
2: Yeah, it's a good question. Like, it's it's a it's it's a challenge, <laughs> um, because like to me, my ideal whatever camper demographic would include you know, like everyone like super super conservative. I don't know, have a Confederate flag, would like do like whatever, um, because like to me, like the really the only way to learn about others is is kind of that real um, direct exposure. Um, so the the challenge is like we're we we're, we're pretty much not going to get those families um, because they're not going to find us <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> because they're not they're likely not you know engaged with WCPT <laughs> they're not they're not necessarily looking for a uh, a, a camp. Well, they might not be looking for a camp, period, but a but a camp that's open to you know diverse populations. Um, Kind of all that said, we do try to we've had we've tried to have um, local outreach with um, because we're mostly in a in a a rural um, majority white. Eh, not majority conservative, but relatively conservative, greater kind of camp region. Um, so we've tried to have um, full uh, camperships available um, to on teacher recommendations. So we're trying that again. So that kind of incorporates a little bit of that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, def- it's definitely challenged because, like, the, ca- the kids and the campers can't get to camp by themselves. So you're going to get mm-hmm. there. You know, they're not going to camp by themselves. So generally, it's going to be a parent or, you know, occasionally a teacher that's going to be able to um, do that. But my ideal was we did have once we had a a, a local um, regional uh, family and mom came to camp and we had our uh, Kupugani flag on the flagpole. And and she was upset (laughs) because it wasn't, you know. And it wasn't an American flag or this and saying it's disrespecting this or that. So that was fine. Like, Hey, we're about appreciating, developing everyone. Um, so that was an interesting outtake, but it was great to have her daughter. What
0: does the Kupagani flag look like and what parts of it did she object to? Uh, I
2: think she just, uh, so the flag is just, uh, it's our logo. So it's like multicolored, you know, um, children just jumping and raising their hands together. Um, so I she, think she was more, she her objection was that it was not an American flag, um, I believe, um, which would be odd because I'm not American <laughs> anyway. So we might have a Canadian flag or maybe a Jamaican flag up there as well. But, um, but it's ironic because we have these couple trees at camp that have all of these uh, directional flags that represent uh, staff and campers who have come to camp. Um, so there's, you know, probably like a seventy to hundred flags, um, and and that to me is what we want. Um, so so to the, so, sort the of object that there wasn't a, a, a large American flag on the flagpole was 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 interesting to me.
0: That is interesting. What other interactions? With students or parents, have you had over the years that surprised you or maybe pleased you? Mm,
2: I would say one example of maybe both. Um, maybe not pleased in the word, but so so say when we have um, campers who have been. Shelter. So, so there was a there was a white camper, a young white camper. She's maybe eight or nine, and her uh, parents, you know, were super. You know, by the books. You know, how are we creating a multicultural environment for our child? <laughs> you know, uh-huh. we read her these books growing up. We're doing all. They're checking all the boxes. Uh, and then you know, last they 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 do not live they do not live in a, a you know they live in a relatively homogenous community. But other than that, and they were like, okay, we'll send her to this multicultural camp too. Yay! Check 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 check. Um, and combine that with a um, so we had you know a good critical mass of of Af- black Af- African American campers who with um, there's a range of comfort with the use of the N-word. Um, you know, for some people, it's like, yo, I'm using that like because you're my best friend <laughs> in a very casual way. Other families are like, no, you can never use this word ever in history. Like, that's terrible. And so it was an interesting development because this uh, white child who had no experience <laughs> with you know befriending anyone of color, <laughs> you know was uh, experimenting a little bit, <laughs> in, yeah. you know, f- in a fair way because like if people are saying like you can't say that word, how does she know? <laughs> She's never had a real world encounter with it. So that was an interesting um, development, and so the so the African American kids who were impacted by it. You know, I'm, I'm talking to them like, whoa, like, you know, this is a real opportunity to help this child. Um, not that the obligation should be on you <laughs> as a black or yeah. an African-American teacher, whatever, but kind of it is. at Like, at Kukugani, it kind of is, because that's our, you know, that's our, this is our, this is an opportunity. Like, do we want this child to go through her life being ignorant or do we want an opportunity to, you know, kind of help chart a different path? Um, so that's so that's a that's that's an interesting. So after that, then we kind of had to curricula, curricularize a little bit <laughs> stuff mm-hmm. around the n words. Um, so, like in subsequent sessions, we're like, okay, here are some basic rules <laughs> around it, <laughs> um, because you know, and, and then going from there. But but by and large, we tried not to have any um, zero tolerance, I mean, aside from safety, you know, aside from obvious mm-hmm. safety, whatever, um, because anytime I hear zero tolerance, I'm like, eh, you know, how are we growing from whatever we're not tolerating? <laughs> um, yeah. How do we get to a, to a better place of growth and development and moving together if we're not willing to listen and hear what other people are saying that might be contrary to what we think or believe?
0: You did make reference just now and earlier to the fact that while most of this sort of growth takes place kind of spontaneously, there is some curriculum. How does that fit into the program? What shape does that take?
2: Uh, We have, uh, so over the course of two weeks, we have uh, four, um, we call them modules, and they're two or three days. Um, each uh, two to four days uh, in length. Um, one of them is always conflict resolution and one of them is, one of them is always diversity. So kind of within those days, you're, whether it's an evening activity or cabinet activity, they, when there are programmed things, they're around those themes. Um, so conflict resolution, diversity are always a thing every session. And then there's a rotating um, kind of three-year Basis of other things. So, um, one of them is like money, not uh, money management, but like fiscal responsibility, um, leadership development, um, artistic creativity, etc. So, there's um, uh, 12 total that kind of get rotated in. Um, so, over the course of if a camper is returning to camp for three years, they won't repeat a module um, except for the conflict resolution and the diversity.
0: Well, since I have you here and uh, um, we have an audience that's listening to this, give us some conflict resolution advice.
2: Uh, The easiest, well, not easiest, the easiest to, to say and not necessarily to do is just Number one, just be quiet. <laughs> listen. <laughs> so, like, listen and truly hear what the the other, you know, what the other person is saying. Um, repeat it back <laughs> so that they, you know, take turns, repeat back. So you are actually hearing and understanding and... Uh, what the, uh, what the other person is saying, um, and then uh, we're huge on I statements. Because um, if you use an I statement, you can't possibly offend anybody Cause when you use a true I statement. So it's just, mm-hmm. like, I feel such a way when such a thing happens because of this, and therefore I'd like to see this. You can't argue with that. Yeah. You have to be careful because there are the fake I statements <laughs> which are really you statements in disguise. So like I feel like I feel, you know, attacked when Joan
4: says such
2: reading mm-hmm. actions, like that's not an I statement at all. <laughs> that's a fake I statement. But um but when, you know, when you're when you're saying what your feelings are, so like I feel I feel nervous when I'm on the radio, <laughs> and therefore, you know, next time I would like you know to be organized and edit, which which actually are all things that happen. then I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> um, you weren't a therapist in a previous life, were you?
2: Not even. I was a a psych major in college only because that was the easiest major I could find. (laughs) Well,
0: because, you know, what you're you know, that's a big those are two big tenets of therapy when trying to get two people to talk to one another. You don't say you're a jerk. You say, I feel this way. And, you know, and the reflection, you know, what I what I hear you saying What I hear you saying, Kevin, is that you would like me to be more open. Those are like the two big basis for any kind of uh, real communication and real understanding between people. And um, I think that, gosh, in 17 years, how many kids have come through the camp? Do you have any idea?
2: Uh, Getting towards 2,000.
0: Wow. Amazing! It must give you such a feeling of accomplishment, Kevin.
2: Yeah, it's it's exciting. Like when it, when he talked about the you know the the, the therapy part of it, um, just seeing like when you actually have two kids actually engage in a real conflict resolution. Well, you see them step outside the cabin and having this conversation and looking each other's eyes. You're like, wow, <laughs> really? <laughs>
0: <That's>, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, Kevin, thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for uh, your continuing support of WCPT, because, you know, I mean, we're all about the mission you have at Camp Kupagani. Uh, Kevin Gordon is the owner of Camp Kupagani. And Kevin, thank you for spending time with us today.
2: Thank you for having me and have a fantastic rest of your
0: day. You too. We're going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with politics right after this. To help us clarify and classify and channel our inner Captain Kirk, we are going to start today with Professor William Muck, who uh, studies everything going on internationally, teaches at North Central College. Uh, welcome, William. How are you?
5: I'm fantastic, Joan. That song was brilliant. That there's there's no no better introduction than that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, I've been playing it all weekend. I first I started with I think the original, which I think is in German, which I happen to particularly like. Um the actual translation, the word for word translation of the original song is much stronger politically than the american version the english version that they later recorded uh for those of us who can't can't be bothered to listen to anything in a in a foreign language it's much more about you know basically world war three starting because there's all these balloons and we are you know assuming that it's the enemy attacking so we respond and that at least hasn't happened with uh, the balloons well actually i'm sorry they're not all balloons. We have one balloon. We have an octagon. We have a cylinder and we have a an object that is simply described as being about the size of a small car. So um, the only thing that I got out of the government briefing, the White House briefing that took place this morning is an emphatic Denial that these are not extraterrestrials. Beyond that, what do we, what do we know, William?
5: Well, how wonderful is it that we can have a conversation about UFOs and our government is talking (laughs) about UFOs and we can do so in a non-conspiratorial fashion, right? I mean, this is a legitimate discourse now. No, you know, look, we don't know a lot yet. And I think the government uh, well, you know, both the White House press secretary and the State Department press secretary were both put in these awkward positions where they had to say, yeah, we don't think it's a UFO, which is sort of comical. But I think the reality is they're figuring this out as we are. Right. So they're you know, it's, it's obvious that the U.S. government has changed how they are looking at what's going on in the U.S. airspace. And and the, the previous mecha- way of doing so wasn't always detecting uh, these balloons and ships and mechanisms that are flying through our airspace. So, so they're trying to figure out what's going on and who is sending these. Is this, you know, are they all coming from China or are we talking about a variety of potential enemies that are spying on the United States? So, so we're entering this, this new era where we're trying to figure out what this, this form of espionage is and really how dangerous it might be
0: and you you touched on espionage, certainly, we have said quite blatantly, our government has said that the Chinese balloon uh, that seems like it was um quite a long time ago, was definitely shot down. We definitely felt that they were spying, and the government has been very careful with these other three objects to say that they were definitely shot down because they posed a threat to commercial aviation because their altitude was much lower than the balloon. And yet when asked about spying, they seem to do a bit of a tap dance and either say, well, we don't know yet, or there's no confirmation of. It's, they're not saying no, that these are not spy devices, but they're not saying yes either. And they're also very carefully not saying where they've come from. So again, let's, my first question is, has, have these things been up there for years and years and years and we never paid attention to them basically because we re- weren't really looking for them and now, and now we are. Your sense of that. And do we really think that like these are from different countries? Is there any
5: indication? Do you think we'll ever know where they've come from? I think we'll figure all of this out. And I think to your, to your first question, I'm guessing that is what the government is trying to, to determine right now. Is this a new tactic? So it's entirely possible that this is something that China's been up to that, you know, China has lots of satellites and that's a more conventional way of carrying out espionage. They do lots of cyber attacks. That's another way of gathering information. But it is possible that they've decided that, that these lower level, you know, vehicles, whether it's, it's a, the balloon, or some sort of some other type of operative is a unique way of gathering other intelligence. Maybe they're going more for radio signals. You know, how are we communicating within the U.S. airspace? It's, it's possible that it is a new technique or a relatively new technique or to your latter point it's entirely possible. It's been going on for a long period of time. We just haven't been looking for it. And I'm guessing over the next couple weeks and months, we'll get a much better sense of that. And then the U.S. government has, again, to decide how serious is this, right? You know, we understand that there are satellites up there and satellites get some really, really good information. And so what is this, you know, these other vehicles that are gathering information at a lower level, what are they trying to do? And is it something that we really need to be worried about? Or is it something that's a little less serious you know i mean i think the the spy balloon is is important but i think we tended to exaggerate a little bit how important that was because it was a new thing so you know the government is stumbling a little bit as they're trying to to figure out what kind of threat this is
0: so you think that all the information will come out with time you don't think that um, this is going to be like the X Files, where we never really know who's who and what's what. Um, that that this information will be shared with people. <laughs> well, what if normally- they're, what if this cylindrical object came from <laughs> us?
5: That's right. Well, so normally the answer to that question is no, right? I mean our government, actually all governments around the world are notorious for not releasing this kind of information. It would be it would be classified and the US public would never hear about it. But what was unique about the spy balloon is that it brought everybody's attention and now the whole world is really thinking about what is going on in our airspace and do we need to be worried about this? And I think, you know, Joe Biden has been under some pretty intense pressure over the last week or so, and the allegation is is that he's been weak on China. So I think that's going to give an incentive to the Biden administration to be as transparent as possible in a circumstance in which they normally wouldn't, uh, especially for these, you know, especially for the, the vehicles that have been shot down over the weekend. I think they're going to have to give some explanation and point a finger. Uh, and again, you know, I think the leading culprit would likely be China because this is, you know, they have the means and the mechanisms to do something like this. Uh, but it's also possible you have Iran or an, a number of other actors who might want to be gathering uh, intelligence on the United States. So so I think I, I think normally we would not hear a peep from the U.S. government about what all this is. But the fact that we know and that there's so much attention and the Biden administration doesn't want to be painted as weak on this, I think they're they're going. To overshare?
0: <laughs> well, I kind of hope they they overshare. This is completely out of left field. If these were aliens. OK, let's say for a minute that they're I mean, because Jim Acosta was talking to a reporter over the weekend and she was saying that for at least one of these objects, I can't remember which one. Maybe it was the car one that supposedly the pilots that were sent up to check it out, they had conflicting stories. Like one pilot said when they got close, their instruments stopped working. And another pilot said, no, that didn't happen to me. And it it sounded it sounded very X-Files. <laughs> if if, you know, you've studied not only our government, but other governments If a government ever really did have evidence of extraterrestrials, do you think the way all the movies portray it, that they would hide that information, that they would bury it? Or do you think they would say, oh, by the way, guys, we're not alone?
5: <laughs> I, well, let's just, I mean, wouldn't it be awful? Let's take a step back. Wouldn't it be awful if the first time that, that you know, uh, aliens reached out to Earth and we shot all their vehicles down? I mean, that <laughs> would sort of be disappointing, too. But no, to, to your question, I, you know, I, so a lot of my research has been looking at uh, covert actions by the United States during the Cold War. So sort of investigating what the United States was doing abroad and why did they try to keep that secret secret. And, and one of the things that you you find is that the U.S. government is really careful about what information it releases. And it, it, it's involved all over the world. And oftentimes it doesn't want that story to get out. So as silly as it sounds, I, I think it's very likely that if the United States has some information that it doesn't know what it is, or if it were an alien life form, I think they would likely keep that secret. And and I'm not saying that as a conspiracy theorist. I'm saying that, it's, you know, the U.S. government is very, very careful about what information it releases. And to be honest, I think we overclassify documents, and you know that I think that connects to some of what we've talked about in terms of you know Trump and Pence and Biden and those documents it's a It's a, a symptom of the broader desire to keep secrets within the u s government, and again, that's not something that's unique to the u s government. But so when it comes to incidents like this, most of the time, we're likely never to hear about what's going on because of this tendency to keep everything secret.
0: I think that's the case, too. And how much credence do you put in the Chinese statements that have been coming out recently that say, well, you know, for years, the United States has been flying balloons over China? I mean, at least 10 instances of U.S. balloons flying over China like so there.
5: You know, it's it's a, it's a great question. I think it, it speaks to the credibility of different actors, because if you're the United States, you don't want to be caught in a lie. So you don't want to say, so Kirby came out today, a spokesman for the State Department and said, no, we do not do this. Um, and you don't want to be caught with, with China having all of this information to say, no, clearly here you did. So my thought on this is the United States probably has not used balloons. But that being said, when you look at the history of what the United States has done, we have denied all sorts of things that we have. Have done, you know, and, and there's no doubt that the United States spies on foreign powers. It is, it's just a central part of international politics. So, you know, it gets us in this awkward place where oftentimes leaders are not honest with their public. You know, it's just part of the game. So, so I tend to think that the United States is probably uh, accurate in saying that we haven't used those balloons. But then there's the other part of my brain that looks back at all the times when the United States was doing things and we denied doing them. So it's 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 hard to know for certain
0: mm-hmm. uh, i certainly agree i guess the part of this whole thing that provokes uh, a, an amused response in me is the fact that this seems like balloons it seems like technology that maybe would have been cutting edge in the 1930s you know i mean like we don't have a better way to spy on somebody than by right. floating a balloon. Um, it's just a little bit, it's a little bit disappointing. However, um, as we go to break, I think we should all practice the phrase Klaatu Barada Nikto just, just in case the ship lands and Gort comes out. We got to be ready. We got to be ready to shut him down. Uh, Professor William Muck and I are going to take a break and be back with more after this.
1: Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
0: While well, I would love to spend this hour with Professor William Muck talking about balloons and playing silly songs, there is a lot that's very serious going on in the world, including what appears to be maybe the beginnings of an increased. Ramp up in the war in Ukraine on Russia's part. And also, and there was a really interesting analysis of it in the New York Times today with experts saying that uh, Putin's strategy is going to be to simply wait this out. No, the war did not go the way he thought it would. In two weeks, he did not have Ukraine under his purview. It is almost a year since the war started and it is still going on. But the belief among some people is that Vladimir Putin still holds out the belief that eventually Western support from Ukraine will diminish yes. and that will be his big opportunity to take over the country. What are your thoughts on that, that take on this war?
5: I think it's a really accurate one. If we, if we step back and look at what's happened over the last year, the war in Ukraine has been a disaster for Russia. I mean, casualty numbers, you know, we're talking about wounded and killed. Potentially 200,000, uh, the economic cost. I mean, this is, you know, Russia has been turned into a pariah state. Uh, there's been a brutal crackdown within Russia. I mean, nothing has gone well for Russia. So Putin has had to, to reassess his strategy multiple different times. And I think this latest iteration is exactly as you said. Uh, he knows that he probably can't take all of Ukraine, but he is hoping that the West will grow tired, that the, the NATO alliance will crack, that Germany may pull back its support, that France might pull back a little bit, and that will weaken the overall military support going to Ukraine. And that will give him the advantage to press ahead. And maybe not take all of Ukraine, but to to get what, you know, he refers to, they refer to this land bridge, right? You're thinking about Eastern Ukraine all the way down to Crimea so that he could carve out a large chunk of eastern Ukraine and say that, you know, this is part of the separatist element of Ukraine. And then, like he did in Crimea, give them a chance to vote to join Russia. So I think, you know, Putin's plan is really that he thinks he can persist longer than the NATO alliance. And and again, this isn't a secret to to NATO or Joe Biden or anybody. They also realize it. So the next stage of this war is, is really, in many ways, going to be political, as well as militarily, as these two sort of bodies push back and forth to say who can stay together the longest
0: he hasn't taken a lot of credit for the international effort but some of the experts i talked to said that this is probably one of the greatest accomplishments of joe biden's presidency is the fact that he has been able to get everybody on the same page and keep them there do you agree with that
5: a 100%. You know, I, uh, it's one of the things that, you know, foreign policy is, is, it's, you know, so far removed from the average day to day, uh, happenings of the American public. So we don't pay a ton of attention to it. But, you know, what Joe Biden has done in a relatively short period of time is really, really impressive. He took a NATO alliance that was in tatters. So, you know, go back to the Trump administration. Trump really did everything he could to, to break apart this organization and, uh, to, to attack it. And to, and I think his ultimate goal, if he'd one re-election was to pull the United States out of NATO. So there was no real unity. And so Joe Biden comes in and he's able to build trust again with those European allies. And that's not easy to do because, you know, they're also thinking, how long is Joe Biden going to be around? You know, is the United States simply going to go back to Trump again? But nevertheless, he was able to build support, pull the alliance together together. You know, get dramatic military supplies to Ukraine. Um, you know, I mean, Ukraine deserves a lot of credit for what happens. But I think second in line there has to be Joe Biden for leading this NATO organization, which had really lost its its footing prior to Joe Biden coming into office. So, you know, I think there's a lot of things you could critique about Joe Biden's foreign foreign policy. But but the Ukraine war is one where I think he has he deserves a tremendous amount of credit.
0: Russia was in Afghanistan for about a decade And from what I understand, the reason that Russia finally left was not because of what was going on in Afghanistan, but rather what was happening at home, that he had lost the support of the people, that people were starting to demonstrate, people were starting to get riled up because they felt that there were too many Russian sons and fathers dying in this conflict. You talked about what's going on in Russia now, that he's already cracked down on the media that he has reinstituted a draft, that there are, by some estimates, 200,000 Russians who have either been killed or damaged in some way by this conflict. Will it be the same? Will Putin sit this out as long as he can keep a lid on things at home?
5: I think that is the real test. So, you know, Putin thinks that NATO is, is going to, you know, eventually crumble and that they're not going to be able to persist. But he's also on the clock. Um, you know, there have been hundreds of thousands of Russians who fled the country. The sanctions, while, you know, sanctions take a long time to have an impact and Russia has been pretty strategic trying to get around them, they're nevertheless having an impact on the Russian economy. So, these are all hard things for Russia and for Putin's leadership. So, he also has a clock that that's clicking. And very much like you said, in the Afghanistan invasion in the 80s, eventually the Russians and the Soviets got tired of this dynamic and wanted to pull back. I mean, you could think about the American example would be the Vietnam War or our own war in Afghanistan, where eventually the American public said enough is enough. So he's got to worry about that. It is hard to occupy a country, even if Russia... You know, let's say in the spring that there, you know, it looks like they're going to have some sort of major offensive. Even if Russia is able to gain more territory, they are still going to be under constant attack. Uh, and how Putin is doing this is he is just throwing hundreds of thousands of Russians at this conflict, basically throwing them into the meat grinder. I don't think for a long term, that's a sustainable approach, right? So I think, you know, Putin thinks that the United States and NATO are going gonna to fall apart and he can wait them out. But I think NATO is also thinking that Putin Putin is on the clock and he also has to move and be successful in a relatively short period of time or his people and his system will turn against him. So it's there's there's a lot really fascinating to watch here.
0: Um, the next week, Friday, Friday, Thursday, no, nope, Friday, next week, Friday is the one year anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine. You know, it's we here in this country, our media, you know, whenever there's an anniversary of something, we like to revisit it and and, and dig back into it. Does this one year anniversary mean anything to Vladimir Putin? In other words, I'm worried. Does this mean he's going to like ramp up an invasion so that when the one year anniversary comes, he can say, well, look at us. Look what we're look what we're doing. Does he care about the one year anniversary or is that just something that we in the media are going to pay attention to?
5: I think he's very much attuned to it right. Uh, Putin is somebody who who thinks about anniversaries. He very much uh puts his own place in history. That's you know very relevant. He wants to to understand this this invasion of Ukraine as being part of Russian history and Russian imperial history. So I'm sure there will be some acknowledgement of it and the great success that it has been, right? So it is he's spinning what's happening there as well. So I, I'm sure it'll be part of the narrative. Now the question of of whether there is sort of an enhanced in, in Invasion or something else big happens, it's hard to know for sure. There's no question that over the next month or so, he is going to do something. They've been building up far too many troops for there not to be some sort of incursion. I think he's going to try to push further into the Donbass. He may come from the north and the Belarus. You know, he's going to do something to commemorate what's going on. Um, So, absolutely, right? I mean, this is all part of a broad story that that Putin is telling. And it's, it's a story about Russian greatness and how he's making Russia great again. And so he's got to continue to feed the people this this false narrative
0: let's take a break i'm talking with professor william muck he's a political science professor and he specializes in international goings-on he's with north central college we're going to be right back after this
1: jonas Esposito, live local and progressive on wcpt 820
0: I'm joined by Professor William Muck. He's with North Central uh, College. He is a political science expert. We have been talking about what's going on in Ukraine as we come to the one year anniversary of that war. We've been talking a little bit about balloons, too. But I want to shift gears now. We now have a death toll in Turkey and Syria of over 36,000 people from the two Really high powered earthquakes, one practically on the heels of the other that hit that area. Just recently, a young woman just was pulled out alive. She possibly is the last person who's going to be pulled out of lo- alive simply because, um, a, a human body can only go so long without, without water, whether or not there is access to air. Some are saying now, starting to speculate about what the political ramifications of this earthquake might be. By all accounts, it was a good, you know, this is what is kind of the golden window to try to get people out alive is pretty much the first 48 hours. And for the first 48 hours, at least in Turkey, there wasn't a lot of help coming to these areas, if help eventually arrived. But it was judged by many people to be slow in coming. Now people are wondering if uh, the Turkish president is going to pay for that because the Turkish uh, presidential elections are on the horizon. Do you think uh, Erdogan will go off into the sunset Being voted out of office from all of the people who felt that he wasn't responsive enough to the disaster.
5: Well, I think he bears a tremendous amount of responsibility for this, right? There's, you know, there's been lots of reporting talking about the taxes that have been collected over years and years and years for earthquake preparation and, and you know, coding and all of these things the government was supposed to be doing to ensure the safety of the public. And it didn't really happen. So so that is, you know, you would think that would create a groundswell of support against him. Now, the the, the counter to that is that what Turkey has seen over the last decade under Erdogan's leadership is a dramatic Decline in democracy. I really wouldn't even describe Turkey as a democracy anymore. They're more of an illiberal democracy uh, where Erdogan is kind of a de facto authoritarian. So then the question is, they've got these elections coming out. Will these elections be free and fair? Fair, You know, will Will Erdogan really put himself out there with the chance to lose or will he manipulate or do something to ensure his own power? Um, it's very, very common for individuals like that to to manipulate the process. So I I think accountability is absolutely necessary, not only for what he didn't do in terms of protecting his own people before the earthquake and during the earthquake and immediately afterwards, but also in terms of bringing in international support. One of the things that you've seen is that a lot of countries were very willing to help, but it takes a long time to get that aid. And so it's oftentimes the responsibility as on the state itself to try to facilitate that. And so when the United States reaches out and says, we, we want to help, they've got the state has to be fully functional in terms of letting that happen because time is of the essence. So I, I think for a variety of reasons, there is going to be tremendous political pressure on Erdogan. Now, whether that translates in him losing an election, I'm not so sure because he strikes me as somebody that will do whatever is necessary behind the scenes to ensure his survival.
0: Well, that's kind of ominous what you just said there. What do you think that means behind the scenes? Well, I mean. Movement.
5: Yeah, I, I think what we're watching is is really the end of. I mean, this is sort of a, a bigger picture look, but I think we're seeing the end of the Turkish democracy. And you know, Turkey is is has been a central player, uh, you know, as part of NATO and, and a variety of other things. But what we've seen is that they they are less democratic, less concerned about the the will of the people. And so I, I think there's a lot of things to think about. I mean, I I think Erdogan will likely use this as a way to consolidate power. Uh, I hope I'm wrong, right? I, I hope that there is there is real revolutionary movement to to remove him from power. But he is, I mean, as we we were just talking about Putin, these more authoritarian figures always are thinking about who's going to try to get them out of power. So there's no question right now he's thinking about how has this earthquake decreased my likelihood of staying in power and what can I do to prevent that from happening, right? So he is very Machiavellian in that way. And it's really been a sad story to watch you know, watch Turkey drift from democracy. I mean, we could even think about what's going on in NATO, right? So NATO wants to bring in Finland and Sweden, uh, and the one state that is holding that up is Turkey. You know, Erdogan wants basically wants a payoff uh, to to allow this to happen. So you know, some really really troubling dynamics in Turkey right now, um, and I think that is is you know it's, it's it doesn't suggest that there's going to be much of a, a response to what's what's happening there.
0: I know Joe Biden isn't the sort of guy to do like what Donald Trump did with Ukraine. Hey, Erdogan, you know, we've got a lot of relief supplies here and, you know, we've we can send you a lot of help. Sure would be nice if you signed off on (laughs) Finland and Sweden as members of NATO. I don't think that's the kind of conversation Joe Biden would ever have. But if we do, and as we apparently are sending aid, If we continue to really help bail out this country in their time of need, is Erdogan the kind of person who is going to feel any kind of debt owed for that?
5: No, I don't think so. Well, that's just wrong. Right, so here's this the interesting thing about all this. So if we go back to you know the Trump example with Ukraine, I think what was interesting about that is Trump was using uh, military aid to help him politically domestically. You know, there's no question the United States will put pressure on Erdogan and Turkey, um, and is, is you know using the leverage that it has. But I, I think it's very unlikely that Joe Biden would link his domestic support. He's not going to ask Erdogan to do something for him domestically, but he might you know use you know in terms of other types of aid or support or other- other issues, you know, it becomes a real game of diplomacy there. So the United States will use its considerable influence to push Erdogan in a direction that the United States sees as in its interest. Uh, But there's there's no guarantee that Erdogan sees this all in the same way, right? So that's, again, that's kind of what's fascinating. I think Turkey in NATO is very similar to what Hungary is doing in the European Union right now. They're both states that are drifting in more anti-democratic directions and are very comfortable being the the sand in the gears of these institutions, and it makes it much more difficult for NATO and the European Union to speak with one collective voice.
0: Okay, all right. We've established Joe Biden isn't going to do a Donald Trump and hold them hostage, but what about in their time of need? Are they getting a lot of supplies and aid from Sweden or Finland? If I were the, If I were in charge of the Swedish government right now, I'd be like, hey, Let's get a plane full of uh, doctors and tents and first aid supplies, and we are going to be on the ground in Turkey by tomorrow morning. You
5: see yeah, absolutely. anything like that? That would be very. I, you know, I, I, to be honest, I don't know. I, I, I am guessing there has been I haven't some seen European anything. aid. Yeah, but I haven't seen anything specific about, but absolutely states do this all the time, Joan. I mean, so the United States, you know, one of the reasons that is, is always at the lead in terms of, of support and aid when, when these crises occur is that not only is it good for the people that are suffering, uh, but it also is good for the perception of the United States. So, you know, um, you can go all the way back to Indonesia when the tsunami hit or there was a massive earthquake, uh, in Pakistan. And the United States was the leading supporter of aid there. And what it did is the people in those countries, it changed their views of the United States in a much more positive direction. So I always say this is an incredibly cheap and inexpensive and meaningful way to improve, you know, the perception of the United States around the world. It's the idea of soft power. And, you know, compared to, you know, buying military equipment, this is, this is cheap. So, you know, this is a good thing to do for the people that are suffering, but it's also a really good thing for the U.S. image abroad.
0: Well, and the same thing would be true for Sweden and Finland, right? I mean, if there were Swedish planes and Finnish planes landing on those Turkish airports filled with aid and supplies, I mean, it could only help, right? Or, I you know, think- he won't care.
5: Uh, you know, I, it's a good question. He may not care, but the Turkish public might. Uh, and so, I, you know, once we're done, I'm going to go do some Googling and seeing if, if Finland and Sweden have sent anything to Turkey, because, you know, again, these, these simple diplomatic gestures go a long way. And I, I think Erdogan himself, again, is a, a very Machiavellian figure in the sense that he's always thinking about his own survival. But that being said, he's attuned to what his public is doing, and, and he realizes the pressure he's under. So he's going to be trying to take steps to make himself more appealing to the public as you know as time moves on
0: i'm speaking with political science professor william muck from north central college we are going to take a break but when we come back i can't let you go william without talking about china when we come back we are going to talk about china taiwan hong kong manufacturing all kinds of stuff right after this
1: joan esposito live local and progressive on wcpt 820
0: I'm speaking with political science professor William Mock from North Central College, and he is an expert in uh, international doings. Kind of hard to have a talk about that these days without touching on China. Uh, We've you know, we've talked before on this show about how um, some experts really worry that in 2024, when Americans are distracted by a presidential election, that. China might see that as a good time to go after Taiwan and try to bring it under its umbrella a little more thoroughly. Some people say that could be the beginning of World War Three. Some, you know, um, I want, William, for you to tell me what you see with Chinese-American relations right now and how you see that changing, if at all, over the next year or two.
5: Well, I think if we step back and think about what we've witnessed over maybe the last five or last 10, you've seen a drifting apart, uh, drifting apart economically. You know, there are a lot of people talk about a decoupling. We still have a fair amount of trade with China, but it's less than it once was. The diplomatic relationship has deteriorated. Now China has become a more powerful actor and they're asserting their, themselves. And, and President Xi has also raised, uh, Chinese nationalism, right? So there was, you know, you know for many of the years of the the rise of china it was a much more humble power uh and now uh she has turned them into a much more nationalistic power where they're going to exert their power and they're not going to be afraid of that and so and i think we've seen some similar dynamics in terms of the united states you know if we think about the trump administration there was lots of nationalism and anti china uh, rhetoric and and i would say even if we look at both the Democrats and the Republicans, those parties are very, very hawkish on China. Um, you know, it's, 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 Democrats and Republicans don't agree on much, but one thing they seem to agree on is that we need to get tough on China. That is is not good news for getting these two superpowers to get along, right? We're I like to think of us, we're in the early stages of a new Cold War, and those two powerful states will define the nature of their relationship over the next couple of years. And you hope that they find ways of having peaceful dialogue, uh, find ways of resolving disputes without them escalating. Um, but it, but it's really important that, that you establish those norms early on. I think the spy balloon incident suggests that there's a lot of work to be done because in the grand scheme of things, I think this was a relatively minor incident and neither party, neither domestic system handled it very well. Um, and that suggests there might be more incidents in the future. So, I think there's a lot of work to be done by the Secretary of State Blinkton and Biden to kind of re-engage with China and find a way to lower that rhetoric. Because when the tensions go down, then China probably doesn't feel the same need to take uh, to take Taiwan right away. The United States doesn't feel the need to be so hawkish. So, so I think if, if we're kind of looking at the grand scheme of history, I think reducing the temperature would be really helpful for allowing both sides to have a bit more dialogue. Um, and if that doesn't happen, you know, I'm a little worried about what happens over the next five years, because there are there are going to be incidents and you have to create guardrails to prevent those incidents from from escalating into more dangerous military conflict.
0: Well, that's a little bit what I'm concerned about here. I mean, as soon as we started getting these reports about the balloon and, you know, was Chinese spy balloon. I knew without reading a single newspaper or newsletter that no matter what Joe Biden did or how he did it, it was going to be the wrong thing, at least as far as Republicans say, oh, you shut it down too fast. You put people in. Oh, wait, you didn't shoot it down soon enough. You know, Um that was you know, there, that was a no win situation going in. But Antony Blinken, by all accounts, was like just about had one foot on a plane ready to head to China to have some talks, and all of a sudden the whole balloon thing um, erupted the ho- the whole plan. Uh, he left the plane, he didn't get to the plane, he turned his car around, whatever, and this visit wasn't supposed to happen. I'm curious, do you think it was his turning around like that was political, and meant to give the Republicans one less thing to complain about? Oh, if there was there's a Chinese spy balloon and your guy flies to China. Or do you think that the administration really was so upset about this balloon that they decided to pull the trip right then and there? What are your thoughts on that? I thought that was kind of a weird perhaps overreaction to what was going on. And I've always wondered what was really behind it.
5: Yeah, I, I think both things are probably occurring, right? So, uh, so initially, my guess is initially the thought is that, you know, China has done this. We have to send a signal to China that we see this as a big deal. You know, when one state violates the, the airspace of another country, you have to send a signal that it's a big deal, right? So I'm sure those preliminary conversations between Biden and Blinkton and the national security team said, we've got to do something, right? And whether that is canceling Blinkton's visit or something else, they have to do something to send a message to China that this is not OK. At the same time, there's no question in my mind that Joe Biden is also thinking about the domestic political ramifications of all of this. Right. He's a seasoned politician. He lived throughout the Cold War. Right. And, you know, the parallel to the Cold War is really, really fascinating here, because throughout the Cold War, one of the, the most effective critiques of the Republicans leveled at Democrats is that they were soft on the the Soviet Union. They were soft on communism. Um, you know, if you go back to something like the Cuban Missile Crisis, and, you know, and you can see, you can read the transcripts of those conversations that Kennedy and his, his team were having. And they were thinking both about the international and the domestic, right? Thinking about what is the Soviet Union going to think if we do this? And what is the American public and what are the Republicans going to think if we do this? So I'm certain that Joe Biden's team is is balancing both of those thinking, how do we do something that sends an effective message to China, but also be aware that we're opening ourselves up to being criticized as being soft on China. Right. So it's, it's really a two level game. That's why foreign policy is so hard, because you're not just dealing with that other international actor. You're also thinking about what is going to happen domestically. What's the public going to do? What's the opposition political party? And the president has to balance all of those pressures.
0: If the Chinese, whether it's in 2024, when quote unquote were distracted or whatever, if the Chinese in the near future decide to have a naval blockade around Taiwan, do you think, just like we did with Berlin, that we would send planes over to drop food and supplies as the Taiwanese people needed them or not?
5: You know, it's that is a really great question. And I think Well, let me say let me put it this way. Yeah.
0: Anthony Blinken calls you up, says Professor William (laughs) Muck. I've heard a lot about you really wondering what you think we should do in this situation. You make the call.
5: Okay. Well, here's, here's where Joe Biden and I might disagree. I think Joe Biden has suggested a, a much more forceful response to defend Taiwan. I, I think, you know, he's been asked a number of times, you know, would you commit troops or, or military support to defend Taiwan? And he has over and over again said, yes. And our policy officially is strategic ambiguity, which is really sort of a messy term. <laughs> uh, but you know, Biden has, has been much more clear. He has said, no, we will defend them. Uh, that makes me a little worried uh, because it just increases the likelihood of some direct interaction. So, you know, it, do I think if Biden was put in that situation, I think he would likely help, you know, what that looks like, whether it's, you know, flying planes in or doing something. Um, I, I think he would like to act, um, but it dramatically increases the likelihood of something going wrong, right? You know, do the do The Ch- the Chinese would likely say that any planes coming into Taiwan would be shot down. So then that's another thing that the president would have to decide. Is he willing to call China's bluff on this? Um, and so when we look throughout history, it's these decisions matter most, right? Do you guess right on the other side? Are they willing to respond? Are they just bluffing? Uh, and if you guess wrong, then you find yourself in the middle of a really, really dangerous and possibly escalatory situation. So, you know, I think I would be much more inclined to reduce tensions and engage in dialogue in the hopes of avoiding the blockade. Um, I think Joe Biden's a little more aggressive on that front. And so I think if this happens, I I think we should anticipate that Joe Biden is is not going to be soft in the response.
0: If you were Vladimir Putin... Would you be talking to Chinese President Xi, Xi is it Xi, Xi?
5: Yeah, Xi, um, like think like she yes, like she, yes.
0: I mean, because it seems to me that if Putin can egg him on, then he might be thinking, ah, we get these countries, the West on involved on two different fronts and they're going to take the eye their eye off the ball in Ukraine I mean, it doesn't seem like that would be out of the realm of thought for Vladimir Putin. Do we know are there any conversations between the two
5: leaders? There are, and and I think uh, Vladimir Putin is very, very interested in continuing to have those conversations. He wants he wants China as his best friend. Now, what we've seen over the last year, as this war in Ukraine has turned sour, and his world opinion has turned against him, that China has created some distance. Right, so it's one of those situations where President Xi may, may be saying to Putin, "Don't call me; I'll call you." Right, uh, because the the power discrepancy is quite significant. China is the real world power. Uh, there are the ones that really matter uh, you know russia matters because they have a lot of nuclear weapons but they're not they don't have the same global influence anymore so i am certain that putin would love to bring china much closer but china is a very very strategic actor and they don't want to get pulled into a messy conflict in ukraine so so i think there's a there's some tension there as well
0: do you think we are headed for world war three if you had to uh, put money on it right now,
5: you know, I know. I, I think, I think there's good reason for. I think there's a pathway to avoid war. And I th- I still think that's the most likely outcome. Um, you know, I think in the past, you and I have talked about this. And I think Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin have been careful in localizing the conflict in Ukraine. Um, you know, the, Putin hasn't escalated into NATO. The United States hasn't attacked Russia proper. And that has helped keep that conflict localized in Ukraine. And that's a really, really big deal. Uh, you, you don't want it spreading. Now, it means that it's been much more painful for Ukraine itself. And it's likely to be a long slow-suffering battle for Ukraine, but it is preventing a broader war. And I'm hoping, and I think it's also likely, that the United States and China are going to do whatever they can to avoid some sort of incident that leads to direct conflict. Because at the end of the day, it's not in the United States' interest to do that, and it's not in China's interest to do that. The challenge is quieting some of these voices within the domestic political system that are going to push for war. You know, thinking about both in the United States and in China, the hardliners who are going to say, you're being weak, we've got to be more aggressive, we've got to do more, right? So it's It's all about finding, you know, silencing some of those more militaristic, more nationalistic voices and then engaging in real diplomacy and recognizing the common interest. Because the United States and China have a lot of economic ties and they're both really, really important and would be much worse off if they went to war. So it's one of those things you want cooler heads to prevail. And I think with the right political leadership in both countries, that's more likely to, to, to occur, right, to avoid that. Um, so I, I still feel pretty optimistic about avoiding World War Three.
0: <laughs> well, I would hope so. I would definitely hope so. I do think that um, I see major American corporations beginning to move some of their manufacturing out of China, though, which makes me concerned that, well, let's just say that may- maybe they don't see a dark future, but they're hedging their bets. Um, They don't want their supply chains to dry up the way they saw them dry up when COVID first hit. If we don't have those economic ties with Russia and China, Hmm. what power do we have to contain their expansion, their desires to expand?
5: It becomes much, much more difficult to do so, right? One of the the lessons that the world learned in World War II is that economic interdependence can help decrease conflict. And so, coming out of that war, there was a major effort in Europe: let's tie Germany and fa- France together economically. Uh, but it was more broader than that. It was like, you know, let's let's find ways of creating a truly global economic interdependent market where the the incentive for going to war is going to be dramatically decreased. And I think for many years. Years, that was successful. And it's only been, you know, of late that you're starting to see states turn away from free trade. And, and the, to be honest, the United States is one of those countries where, you know, the public, you see both elements of the Democratic and the Republican Party that want to pull away from free trade. So so no, I, I think in general, the, the more economically interdependent countries are, the less likely they are to go to war. It's, it's a really powerful um, explanation. But once you pull away from that, it creates spaces for populists, for demagogues, for nationalistic leaders who can encourage their public to head to war. So, you know, I think we're, we're in a really, really interesting time in world history. There's so many things that are yet to be determined and, and leadership is going to matter. I mean, I can't tell you that enough about, you know, within the United States, the, you know, the next 10 years of leadership are really going to matter. And you want people who are thoughtful, can put themselves in the other side's shoes to kind of understand things and avoid the temptation of sliding into war.
0: One thing that surprised me, I, I'm not a great reader of history. That's something that I read occasionally, but it's its not my staple. But reading that oftentimes a single leader, the right person at the right place and the right time, can really make a huge difference in the direction that events take. Is that has that always been the case throughout history?
5: Yes, absolutely, right? It, both for good and for bad, right? So you think about those moments when you had good leadership and poor leadership, right? So, you know, going back to World War I, there were some terrible leaders, you know, the Kaiser in Germany, just, you know, just an awful leader. I think you could probably avoid war if you had removed him from the equation. I mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis. I, I tell my students, if it wasn't for Kennedy and Khrushchev, both of them being in, in, in leadership at that time, I think the world probably blows each other up. Um, and you know, it was both Kennedy and I think maybe even more so Khrushchev in terms of understanding the gravity of the situation. Those unique roles when when Donald Trump was president and we were having tensions with Kim Jong Un of North Korea, I, Joan, I was terrified, right? Because you had two like-minded leaders who very you know didn't the cost didn't add up the same. And so you know I think it's really important that you have leaders who have some sense of restraint, who understand history and and can be restrained in terms of how they they lead their countries it's so so important you're spot on
0: Hmm, kind of wish i weren't um makes you really (laughs) worry about who's where when william it is always a delight to talk to you and i always i always learn important things and my audience loves hearing from you i get great feedback every time you're on thank you thank you thank you you will be back sooner rather than later my friend
5: thank you so much joan i always enjoy chatting with you
0: we are going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with more politics after this.
1: Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Jonas Esposito. all ready for this? On WCPT 820.
0: Of course, you listen to Edwin Eisendrath Saturdays from 1 to 4 on his show called The Big Picture. But Edwin also writes a Substack. He has a Substack account you can subscribe to, and uh, at least once a week, he posts an essay of his thoughts on politics. His most recent one is titled, Joe Biden's Economic Policies Might Be His Greatest Accomplishment because I also believe that Joe Biden is going to go down as one of the most accomplished presidents of our lifetime. I asked Edwin if he would join me and talk about this in greater detail. Hello, Edwin. How are you?
3: Hi, Joan. Good.
0: Glad, glad to hear it. Um, tell me why. First of all, what gave you the idea to focus on President Biden's economic policies? There's a lot of different things that he has done and is doing that are of note. Why this? And 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 what was important about it to you to write about?
3: Yeah, well, I actually was just writing some predictions, which is a very dangerous thing to do. <laughs> um, and, right, and, and I just felt like I hadn't taken that risk. So I. I made a few, but the one on Joe Biden's um, legacy focuses on on the economy. And I, I, you know, we talk all the time, particularly on on my show on Saturday, people call in and it's it's the focus of the politics that we talk about a lot. So what are we doing to, you know, to combat the threat to the democracy? It's a big topic, really important. Um, you know, how are we staving off sort of the mad members of Congress, right, who, who, the, who the, uh, the institution has been turned over to? Or, um, you know, what, what did we accomplish in the last 117th Congress? Miracle, right? Uh, climate change, um, uh, drug prices, uh, infrastructure, really important stuff, But I think if we're going to defuse the political bomb we have in America, if we're going to make it um, so that people just aren't hunting for scapegoats, you know, and those scapegoats are always um, women, black men, uh, Jews, uh, people who are queer, trans folks, right? And and we see it all over the country and and stoking of fear and hate. One of the reasons for that is this sense that the economy isn't working for ordinary Americans. <coughs> Excuse me, John. That's okay. And, I, you know, I've always um, been mindful that from 1948 until 1973, hourly um, uh, compensation in the United States went up a little over 90%, and our productivity nearly doubled. So our productivity went up you know, 96%, our compensation went up 91%. So in that whole post-war period, Americans were sharing in the productivity growth that they created by working more efficiently. But starting in the mid-70s, that changed. Um, And and, and since then, you know, the gap has gone crazy. Productivity has gone up another 75%. And hourly compensation, take a guess.
0: Gone up a little,
3: yeah, nine percent, nine, right? So they were almost almost identical from forty eight to seventy three, and then starting um, and from seventy three till now, you know, the economy has has uh, more than doubled in size, but we have not. Workers, normal Americans, have not shared in that growth, and hence you have this enormous gap that is causing such frustration and people to feel like it's a swamp and we can't get anything done. And in fairness, some of the money that was siphoned off at the top is now polluting our politics and dark money and everything else. And this Joe Biden feels in his bones. Uh, And he has made for the first time a dent, right? His focus Mm -hmm. on unions has made a difference. Most importantly, he has reinvigorated antitrust. And, and, you know, um, we've been focusing on Keynesian economics for a long time. And that just says, like, if, if the economy is going into a recession, can you prime the pump with government money so that uh, people don't stop buying, right? And, and, and it's consumer investments that keep the economy going. But the former Labor Secretary, Robert Wright, points out that um, when all the money is going to the top 1%, you're going to have to pump an awful lot more money into the economy to make up for the fact that ordinary workers don't really have the money to keep the economy going. Hence, the debt spiral gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, so Biden's focus on lifting the bottom and the middle uh, and letting us all share in the miracle of the American economy is profound. And if he's successful, I think it defuses the rage that we see in our politics
0: how quickly a process do you see that being because it seems to me that we have fully embraced rage and seem to not be able to or maybe not want to let it go
3: yeah no it's not quick uh, it's going to take a it, it's going to take more work in a generation i mean we're in this for a long time but to to make up for you know 60 50 years maybe of uh, uh, of an economy that doesn't work for most americans that doesn't that does not get fixed overnight but he's the first president in a long time who's tried and once he shows that 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 we can make progress that we can narrow the gap right between the very very wealthy and everybody else once ordinary americans start to get a sense that working hard actually has benefits, right? That that they're not falling further and further behind. Then I think it takes the pressure off. But this is not a. I mean, my predictions were a generation off, You know, long. It's going to take. It's going to take a lot of time, and it's going to take enormous political effort. You know, at the State of the Union, he asked for more power, stronger antitrust laws to. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, to stop corporate monopolies. I mean, one of the reasons for the inflation we have are are corporate profits. And look, I am all for corporate profits. Don't get me wrong. I I think American corporations are amazing uh, institutions, and they should be allowed to make a profit. But in the context of real competition, right, then then consumers have choices. And And there has to be
0: balance, too. I mean, when you see year after year, Corporations that do billions in business and uh, you know pay will pay twenty dollars in federal taxes. Just, there's a fairness they, element yeah. there.
3: Oh, absolutely, they need to pay their taxes. Absolutely. I mean, you know, um, and we don't, you know, we don't have as progressive an income tax system as we used to either in America. <clears throat> so our, our um, years of Republican tax cuts are. are, are uh, have not helped the economy, and certainly not helped ordinary Americans. They've helped the top for sure, but they haven't helped ordinary Americans. But they're two different problems, right? Um, that goes to the whole the functioning of the whole economy and fairness. But um, even if you, even if corporations paid their share, and we did nothing about antitrust, and we did nothing about rent seeking behaviors by monopolists, then then you know ordinary Americans would still be falling behind
0: we need to take a break i'm speaking to edwin eisendrath he hosts the big picture show every saturday here on wcpt from one to four he also uh, writes a column do you we call them columns essays posts what do you call it edwin
3: i call it hey if you're gonna read it thank you
0: <laughs> okay. He he writes, hey, if you're going to read it, thank you on Substack. You can subscribe to his essays there. We're going to continue our conversation right after this.
1: Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
0: I'm speaking with... The big picture host, Edwin Eisendrath, he's on every Saturday from 1 to 4. He also writes a substack that you can find by putting his name in the search bar. His most recent post talks about some of the predictions he's making. And um, I want to talk to you about your prediction for what will happen with the new committee on Uh, investigating the weaponization of government, Jim Jordan's big passion project. Edwin, what do you think about that?
3: Well, not much. (laughs) You know, I mean, um, I, I think, again, this goes into the prediction world, and this partly depends on whether we keep our cool, right? Because all of what Jim Jordan does is meant to get under the skin of Democrats and make us crazy and, and, you know, make us foam at the mouth and do dumb things. If we can avoid it, then, what it, then, then his committee is gonna do about the same thing that um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders' State of the Union response did, right? And, and for anybody who saw that fine piece of work, uh, they speak to themselves. They know well, you know, and I
0: wondered about that. I, I know we're kind of getting off on a tangent, but I thought to myself, "What? she clearly was just talking to the base. What a wasted opportunity. What a wasted opportunity. She had this, at least theoretically, I mean, I personally think that a lot of people didn't hang on that long to hear her, but, but, you know, she had this national audience, and instead of, offering any kind of olive branch or any kind of argument to win over independence or those in the middle, it was all, it was all directed at seemingly to me at the lowest common denominator.
3: Yeah, no, normal human beings who aren't, you know, read into the cult, you need a secret decoder ring to understand what you're just talking about. Right. Because I, like, I don't know false idols and fake flags. And like, I don't know what she's talking about. You know, the only idols I, I see are that big gold one they made of Donald Trump and, oh, I don't know, every Republican's favorite AK-47. I, so I don't, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me. The words don't even make any sense when you listen to her say them. But she's speaking to her own base. And that's all they got, Joan. So what she's doing, look, it all fits together. What she's doing, what Jim Jordan is trying to do, is to make their base harder, right, harder. And they can do that. They can succeed in that. But they also make it smaller, because human beings aren't completely crazy. And and several of them will peel off and peel off and peel off until they're left with the most rabid core, which is what's happened to them over the years, after all. So so my, my prediction is that um, they will succeed in firing up the Republican base, but they will also shrink that base a little bit, and and then there will be more people who are fed up with them. Now, the problem for us, those of us who are fed up, is that they use the power they have to rig the system so that it no longer matters that they aren't the majority, right? They can govern from from a position of, we didn't get enough votes. But um, I think their numbers, you know... um, I mean, it's hard to believe, you know, but we control the Senate, and the Senate is not based on popular votes, right? I mean, Republican senators mm-hmm. represent; they have as many senators as we do. Almost, no,
0: that's we got, got the tail wagging them. the dog there in the Senate. Yeah, but
3: they got about forty percent of the votes, and we still. But we, but, but we, you know, we're doing. We're, we're going to be okay there. We're gonna. We're gonna keep pushing them into this hole that they are delighted to go down. This hole, this rabbit hole, um, but I. I I, I want to temper my optimism um, by telling people it's going to be a lot of work. We can't, we'll win this fight, but we have to keep at it every day, and we have to keep our eye on it. They're doing terrible, dangerous things. I mean, you know, they thought, they thought the cynics, they thought that Dobbs was just a news cycle event and people would get over it.
0: But the that's,
3: truth is, it is killing
0: people. That's it is so hard. out of it, touch. I, 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 I hear that. That's what it seems to be. That's what I'm observing. How on earth earth do you take away a fundamental right to half of the country and think that it's going to blow over at the end of that week's news cycle how are you so out of touch and so short-sighted that you do they maybe they don't really believe it maybe they just had their fingers crossed
3: John, um, remember that for 50 years 35 years sorry Americans participated in the growth of our economy, and then they stopped it from happening. And you know what? They got away with it. I mean, if you can steal participation in the American economy from the vast majority of Americans over the course of fifty years, you know what? You pretty much think you can get away with anything.
0: One thing but that I wonder—I wonder was going to say—one thing that I wonder about go going ahead. forward. Yeah, can you hear me, Edwin? Well, I can now. Oh, excellent. Yes. Um, One thing that I wonder about going forward, you know, most people, I know this is shocking, most people aren't like you and me, and... Uh, really up to our ears in this kind of stuff. And frankly, most people aren't even as, frankly, as involved as the people who listen to our radio station. You know, they've got kids, they've got lives, they've got jobs, maybe more than one. They're going in a million different directions. And they have either not the time nor the interest to pay attention. And, and you talk about how they let things slide away. I think that was a lot of it. I think, you know, and, and the studies seem to, to show that most people, the average person, pays attention to an election maybe a week before the election, maybe the day of the election. How do we break through that that kind of roadblock to being an informed voter?
3: Yeah, Joan, that's a really good point. Um, uh, before I answer it, I want to say I am delighted that most people don't pay the attention that you pay and I pay. Anyway, I don't want them to. I want to go. I want to go to theater. You know what? I want to see people pay attention to to that. I want to go. Uh, you know, um, to read a great book. I am glad people are paying attention to that. I mean, we 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 should not be overwhelmed. Our politics. When we have to be, we rise to the occasion, as we had, as we did this last year. But mostly, we should. It should not. Every election should not be the entire democracy is on the ballot, as it is this at this moment. Right. So, if we can get past it and turn down the temperature, people will do amazing things with their time, and I don't begrudge them that. But we have a problem, and it's related to news. It's one of the reasons why I like the model of the Courier newsroom. I like it a lot uh, because their view is how do we get information to people who don't normally get it? Um, um, right, I mean, radio's particularly good at this in some ways because we're free. I mean, people don't want to pay more for news, but people pay for a lot of things. Subscriptions to print are expensive. Paywalls, I think, are particularly a problem around political news. I wish, I wish they didn't have them. Paywall the crossword puzzle that people want you know paywall maybe sports that people want to pay for but the civic stuff that's really important i wish there weren't paywalls around so that people could get that information Um, and and there are newsrooms out there that are you know pioneering some interesting strategies for getting information to people who you know have limited time and aren't going to pay for it
0: explain a little bit to the audience how the whole courier newsroom setup works, Edwin?
3: It's mostly focused on, um, it, it's regular reporting, and and they don't just do politics, um, in part because, you know, who's going to pay attention if it's only politics? Um, but then they spend a lot of time thinking about a social media strategy using Facebook and Instagram and whatever they uh, platforms they think people are on in order to get, the stories that matter in front of people, right? Um, and it's made a difference. I've looked at research about their work, and it has really, truly, um, yeah, it has absolutely made a difference in terms of turnout and in terms of um, when you poll after, before, and after people look at their stuff. It's made a difference.
0: And people one of the things know. that I think they do really well is uh, they're hyper local. You know, I mean, we're losing so many. I mean, when I grew up in Illyria, Ohio, a community of 30, maybe on a good day, 35,000 people, we had our own newspaper, the Illyria Chronicle Telegram. And those kinds of small town papers are all but completely gone now.
3: Yeah, well, so are most big town papers. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Heck,
0: Sadly uh, I- true. I mean, and
3: I I guess I don't, um, you know, I don't think I um, can defend print on its own. And I'm not sure I need to, but journalism sure does need a a new way to get to people. And there's very little that's as important as good journalism.
0: Mm -hmm. Very Um, little. I mean... Well, there's, there's more I'd like to talk to you about, but we are, we are out of time. One of the things, talking about more ways to reach people, more and more of the people that I enjoy reading are creating, uh, Substacks. I have, um, I subscribe to a fair number of, of people who communicate that way. So you, the listener, if you've never checked it out, um, you know, Google a few names of people you like to read. I bet you they have a sub stack. And once you've chosen a few, they have an algorithm that says, well, you know, you like Edwin Eisendrath. Maybe you'd like this person as well. And it's um, it's an interesting way to be informed on your own time when you have a moment to read something. Edwin, thank you so much. Really appreciate you uh, joining you, us. And um, we'll keep track of all your predictions and see how well you do. Thank you. <laughs> okay. I'll listen to you on Saturday. We're going to take a break. We are going to be talking about <sighs> the Texas judge that's threatening abortion pills right after this.
1: Jonas Pazito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
0: You may have seen in the news recently that there is a Texas judge that is going to rule on uh, mifepristone. Mf- that is the medicine that is used in the majority of abortions. We are long past the days where somebody has to go to a hospital and have a D&C or go to a doctor's office and have to have some kind of vacuum procedure to have an abortion. The majority of abortions, you take some pills and those pills bring on a period. There is a Texas judge that is going to be making a ruling, a very Trumpian judge who is going to be making a ruling that could potentially affect the distribution of abortion pills nationwide nationwide. The the ruling was supposed to come sooner, but there has been such a hue and cry over this that it was announced that the decision is going to be put off for a bit. I believe the last timetable I saw was that this judge was going to make their decision public, I believe, the end of next week. It could have devastating consequences. Laura Packard joins me now. She's founder of Healthcare Voter, which is a health, as as the name says, a healthcare advocacy group. Laura, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Before we get into this other discussion, tell the audience about Healthcare Voter.
4: OK, well, um, I'm the executive director of Healthcare Voter, which is a group that uh, does what it says, organizes Americans to vote and vote on health care issues.
0: Such as what are some of the issues you've tackled in the past? Uh,
4: we've tackled uh, the uh, attacks on the Affordable Care Act. And expanding health care through uh, what eventually became the Inflation Reduction Act, lowering drug prices, and, of course, protecting uh, women's uh, right to health care, including abortion, because abortion is health
0: care. Personally, Laura, what brought you to this kind of activism
4: Uh, I am a cancer survivor. About six years ago, I was diagnosed, and uh, the day after my first uh, chemotherapy appointment, Republicans in the U.S. House voted to dismantle the Affordable Care Act, which was keeping me alive. So, healthcare is a very personal issue for me, and fighting back uh, against attacks on our healthcare is something that is personal and professional for the past few years.
0: I was in the same spot you were. Um, unfortunately, when I was first diagnosed with cancer, the Affordable Care Act didn't exist. But here in Illinois, we had passed something called the CHIP Act, which was supposed to be an insurance program for low income children. And weirdly enough, there was this one paragraph that said, Oh, we will we'll cover adults, but only if they have one of these 12 cancers. And I guess I got lucky because my cancer was on the list. And so I got government insurance. And then, of course, when the ACA was passed, my government insurance passed into the ACA. So I know uh, what you're talking about and how you literally, even if, you know, you can get through the treatments uh, to survive. The financial hit is breathtaking. Just cancer is not cheap to fight. You know, most of the people I know who've been through it, now, whether they've got insurance or not, the bill tends to be, At least 250,000 by the time all is said and done, the surgeries, the radiation, the chemo, Mm -hmm. the post-chemo treatments, the ancillary treatments, the drugs, whatever. It is, um, and like, you, like, you don't have enough on your plate just trying to stay alive. Uh, so, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I understand exactly the kind of passion you bring to, to this organization, healthcare voter. So let's talk about what's going on in Texas. You know, talk to me about what you are looking at when you see what's going on there. Well, this is a radical right-wing judge.
4: And unfortunately, his ruling could affect everyone, not just people in Texas. So uh, if you're thinking, well, this is only Texas's problem, If he declares, uh, if he overturns the FDA's uh, uh, approval of the drug uh, misoprestone, that could be a nationwide decision. And uh, also, we should think about whether we really want to live in a country where random judges decide what drugs are safe and available or not, as opposed to science.
0: It it does seem that things have gotten really, really out of whack when, you know, especially when one judge has this kind of potential, potential power. If, you know, I agree with you, he's You can't even just say, like, he's a regular middle-of-the-road conservative. This guy is very far right, which does not give me a lot of hope. What do you think is going to happen when he finally makes this ruling? What are you expecting? Well, the judge is
4: U.S. District Judge Matthew Kazmierich. And he is an appointee of former President Donald Trump, and he has a history of these radical right wing rulings. So we don't know what he's going to rule. Uh, we do know roughly when, which is sometime between now and February 24th. Uh, and, and we don't know what exactly that ruling is going to include, but he could grant an emergency injunction that would force the FDA to withdraw its approval of this drug and pull it off the market nationwide. Now, if he does that, and no other case that we know of has a federal judge ordered the FDA to remove a drug, uh, this could affect other drugs because apparently this this turns into open season where, if any judge doesn't like a drug, they could have it removed nationwide uh, there There still is an option. Uh, currently, uh, the standard of care is for a medication abortion is to use mifepristone and misoprostol together. You can just use misoprostol alone; it is uh, less effective, but uh, it, it is possible to do that. So uh, we'll see what happens. Also, the FDA can restart the process all over again to get a. Uh, this uh, drug re approved, but that could take years. So, mifepristone, which you may know as RU486, is the specific drug that is uh, uh, at risk here. And it isn't just used for abortion. Mifepristone is also used in the management, management, and treatment of Cushing syndrome and fibroids. So, this can go far beyond uh, abortion to uh, people dealing with uh, chronic conditions uh, like fibroids.
0: And we have seen this before. Uh, Selena Gomez, the actress who and singer who famously has lupus, one of the drugs that she takes regularly to control her lupus has been deemed by some states as a possible abortifacient in other words taking the drug uh, some people might take the drug in order to have a miscarriage have an abortion and she said that there are now places where she can no longer get this drug that she takes for lupus and everybody else who takes it for lupus now has to live with this and it's that's this is not your example and my example are not the only instances where this is happening, it is um the repercussions of what states are doing now. It's affecting so many more people, you know, even people who are opposed to um, a- opposed to abortion under any circumstances. I don't think they could have foreseen the ripples going out from some of these laws and how people's day to day lives who have nothing to do with abortion are being affected. It's, it's, it's just horrific. Now, I'm curious as to what you think. This judge was originally supposed to issue a ruling by now. And the announcement was made that the ruling was going to be delayed. We know that despite the fact that they're supposed to be above the fray, judges are people and judges are aware of the controversies surrounding their statements and rulings they're aware of the kind of pushback certain ideas um g- in gender. do you think this judge pushed back the decision as a tepid way of trying to diffuse this situation Possibly.
4: Uh, The judge issued an order extending the briefing process so that more people could weigh in uh, that. Doesn't really indicate one way or another how he's going to rule, but it does give us more time to spread the word about what's at stake and make sure people know. I think that even though the Supreme Court uh, decision on Roe versus Wade was leaked ahead of time,
0: I think maybe a lot of people believe that it wasn't really going to happen. That oh, I'm one of those it, people, it, Laura. I'm one of those people. I was like, okay, well, now that we know, no, you know, now that there's this hue and cry, surely they'll edit it. Surely they'll rework it. It, that, it won't come out like that. I, that's what I said. That's what I said on the radio. I didn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that they would do something so radical.
4: Well, I mean this this is not the beginning. This this is a part of a war. On our reproductive rights that has been decades in the making so I don't think that we can assume that public pressure is going to make this judge rule any different I mean we just don't know and that we we just need to keep spreading the word so people know that this is imminent and then if and when the ruling happens we need to spread the word if if the ruling does take away one of our fundamental rights the right to have a safe medication abortion in red states, in blue states, in all of the states, this this judge's ruling uh, could take effect. And uh, if it isn't stayed, it could even take effect immediately. Um, it, it will almost certainly be appealed to the uh, Fifth Circuit. Uh, that is a very conservative state. Uh, Circuit of appeals. So I, I don't know that they would overturn it. It probably would eventually wind up in the Supreme Court, and we don't know how they're oh, going to rule.
0: God so. help us. Um, yeah, Laura, so we I mean, need to take a break, but I want to talk to you about this more. Laura Packard is the founder and executive director of Healthcare Voter. We're talking about the potential Texas court ruling that could upend medication abortions. We'll be back with more after this.
1: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
0: I am joined by Laura Packard, who is the executive director and founder of Health Care Voter, an activist group that pays attention to what is going on in the political and health care worlds. We're talking about an expected Texas court ruling, a ruling expected sometime in the next two weeks that could potentially bring an end nationally to the distribution of abortion medicine. The majority of abortions these days are conducted by taking medication. A period is brought about. It is not the kind of surgical procedure that it always was in the past. Laura, if this Trumpian, Trumpy judge rules the way we're afraid he's going to rule, you talked about uh, getting this ruling stayed. How long do you think, if this ruling goes into effect, clearly lawyers for the ACLU and other organizations are going to jump on this, how quickly could this order be stopped, do you think?
4: Uh, well, uh it's a question of whether the order, uh, his decision, takes immediate effect or if it's stayed pending appeal. So that's that's just a whole bunch of words to say whether it takes whether it happens immediately or whether it's on pause as the case you know goes to higher courts. And so I don't know how how this is going to play out. Uh, I mean, we saw with the Roe versus Wade decision because it's the Supreme Court and they are the last court. When they put their decision in, when when they released their decision, it took effect immediately. So uh, w- we don't know on this one, um, if, if it could take effect, if it took effect immediately and it is nationwide, if it, 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 he could release a, a nationwide uh, opinion, then it would be immediate. Uh, I imagine that uh, abortion clinics around the country are preparing for that possibility, Uh, but uh, you can expect a whole lot of chaos, just like when the Roe v. Wade uh, decision came down, and you can expect many, many people will be affected.
0: You know, when Roe v. Wade decision came down and we knew the states were going to go crazy, some people were suggesting that any woman of childbearing age should simply go to her doctor and get a prescription for these drugs just so like she has them in hand just in case. And so many people were like, oh, that's so extreme, you know, that's so ridiculous, that's an overreaction. Sure doesn't feel like an overreaction today, does it?
4: No, and uh, as I said earlier, this isn't just about this one drug, this is saying that judges instead of the FDA, are the deciders of which drugs are available and safe in America. So This could go far beyond this particular drug to potentially affect any drug. Uh, what's, what's to stop them from just going after this one particular drug? Especially, this is a strictly politically motivated judge. This judge is not a medical professional that has decided this drug is unsafe. If this drug at the Decides to tell the FDA to pull it. It has nothing to do with our health. It has to do with his political opinions.
0: You know, this whole situation surprises me only because I would have thought that there were laws in place that would say, you know, hey, we're the FDA, we're the ones who get to make these decisions. And that these decisions, I don't understand why they're even subject to a review by the court. It seems to me that one of the worst fallouts from Donald Trump as president is that, is that we've discovered that the courts can, it's almost like they're all powerful, that they can Mm -hmm. shape our lives more than our legislators, more than our lawmakers, more than our organizations where we seem to be at the whim of judges. If I were working at the FDA, if I were leading the FDA, I'd be going to Capitol Hill and saying, "Guys, we got to fix this. You know, nobody should be able to um weigh in politically on a decision we make scientifically. Do you see any indication that the FDA is doing anything like that? uh well
4: they're a government agency so i think that um you know they they don't have the ability to act beyond their mandate so i think this is more something that the white house and congress would need to push on but this this particular drug mifepristone was first approved by the fda more than 20 years ago and has been used by more than 5 million americans to safely end their pregnancies. And now this particular judge has just has woke up and decided that it's not safe? Of course not. He's decided he doesn't like this drug. And so he's going to try and uh, throw it out based on his personal political beliefs instead of what's best for Americans' health.
0: Well, I'm glad that your organization is uh, on top of this and working on this issue and making sure that People like me remember to talk about this issue. And this is definitely something that we're going to be keeping an eye on. And frankly, in the future, if there's something that Healthcare Voter wants to bring some attention to, please reach out uh, because uh, your interests and our interests align, Laura. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that. Laura Packard is the founder and executive director of Healthcare Voter. Right now, they're shining a light on what is happening in Texas and how it could affect all of us nationwide. Uh, that's going to do it for me today. Before I sign off, though, I do want to remind you that we are going to spend the next couple of weeks tracking down and interviewing all the various candidates who want to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago just as we did for Paul Vallis last week, um, I would like you to text in or email me questions that you would like, say, for tomorrow from 2.30 to 3.30. We're going to be talking to Brandon Johnson from four o'clock to five o'clock. We're going to be talking to Willie Wilson because we have both of these candidates for longer than just 30 minutes. At least I'm pretty sure we do. Um, I'm also going to be opening up the phone lines because we have the time uh, to let in um, phone call callers. Uh, so you can ask your own question. But if you have a question that you want to make sure I ask either or both of the candidates we'll be talking to tomorrow, please either email me or text it to me. Our texting line our texting number is the same number you use to call in to talk on air, 773-763-9278, 773-763-9278 or 773-763-WCPT. You, you know, plug that into your uh, text app. And let me know what question you want me to ask Brandon Johnson. Let me know what question you want me to ask Dr. Willie Wilson when we have them on tomorrow. Later in the week on Thursday, we're going to be talking to Cam Buckner and Sophia King. Next week, we've got um, Alderman Roderick Sawyer on our schedule as well. So we are going to be giving you the opportunity. You see all these forums, you listen to all these forums and you sometimes I know you're frustrated because you wish the moderator asked a different question or asked a question a different way, this is your chance to be the moderator, okay? Tomorrow, 2.30 to 3.30 and then 4 to 5, we are going to be talking to two mayoral candidates. Let me know what your questions are or call in and ask the candidates your question directly. It's uh, It promises to be a really fun day. As I said, that's going to do it for me today. Uh Driving at home with Patty Vasquez is up next. Santita Jackson is going to start our day tomorrow, Tuesday at 6 a.m. She's on from 6 to 8. I will be joining you at 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. And we are going to have fun talking politics. Politics, politics, politics. <laughs> Just like you like it. Okay, well, until then, stay safe, my friends, and have a good evening. Good night.